I shared this story once before with you. I'll probably share it again. It's one of my favorite stories um, about value. Uh, it's about a man who wanders into a small antique shop while he is out in San Francisco. If you've been in one of these antique shops, you know they're usually cluttered with knickknacks and junk. He staggers in and on the floor he, he notices what looks to be an ancient Chinese vase. A closer inspection, it turns out as he, as he looks at it that this is a priceless relic from the Ming Dynasty whose value is beyond calculating. It's worth everything else in that store put together. The owner clearly had no idea about the value of this possession, about his possession, because he was using it. It was filled with milk. The cat was drinking out of it. He had made it a cat bowl. And so this man, maybe like you and me, sees an opportunity for the deal of a lifetime. So he, he thinks to himself, oh, i got to come up with a plan here. I don't want to see him appear overanxious. So he strategizes a method to obtain the vase for a fraction of what its real worth is. So he goes to the owner and he goes, you know, that is an extraordinary cat that you have there. The owner says, that cat, really? And uh, he says, let me ask you, how much would you sell her for? Well, that cat's not really for sale, the owner said. She keeps the store free of mice. No, 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 the man said, I, I must have her. The man countered, he said, I'll, I'll give you $100 for her. Well, the owner kind of chuckled and laughed and said, $100? She's not really worth that, but if you want her, I guess she's yours. And so the man hands on her over the $100, and he goes, uh, I'll need something to feed her from as well. Um, he goes, you know what? I'll throw in another $10 for the saucer she's drinking out of. And the man looks almost knowingly at him and goes, I could never do that. That saucer, that's an ancient Chinese vase from the Ming Dynasty. It's my prized possession whose worth is beyond calculation. Funny thing though, since we've had it, I've sold 17 cats. <laughs> the ability, right, to assign value and worth to things and to people is a pretty precious gift in this world and we all do it all the time. If you were here for our last series, Who Is This Man?, you might recall one of the things that was so amazing about this Jesus that so many of us are trying to follow is how he turned the world upside down, especially in, in regards to how people are valued, how things are valued, from children to women, from education to even life itself. This one singular life, this one singular man, as his life echoes through generations of his followers, it has brought about a revolution in value. As I was thinking about that message this week, I couldn't help but, but almost get moved to tears as I, I kind of put that message together about who this Jesus is I follow, about the value of, of some things that are broken. And, and I saw the, the kind of viral video of this little girl Anu from Birmingham, England. Anybody see that video this week? She had had um, her leg amputated soon after she was born. An ailment that prior to Jesus changing the world's view on children, uh, especially children born with disabilities or the value of children in general. Likely for a new, that would have meant a death sentence. And look, if we're honest, guys, even in the world we live in today, in most places, a young girl with an amputated leg, that would have impact on how she'd be received, on what her future holds. People we know, uh, people we hear who wrestle with physical challenge will, will often tell you some of the difficult, most difficult obstacles are, are the faces and the attitudes of the so-called normal people. Who, who sometimes are anxious about how to respond, who sometimes are unkind, who sometimes look away 
uh, to avoid meeting eye to eye. You know, we, we live in a, in a fast-paced world. We live in a world where, where people that are, are different sometimes are not all that highly valued. Um, it's a fast place world, and we're not really very gracious for those who can't run as fast as the others. And so I was so deeply moved by this, I was asking my wife if she saw it. Anu, if you've seen the video, um, this little girl, she showed up at school for the first time a couple weeks ago um, since she had had a new prosthetic pink leg um, put on her amputated leg. And this new pink leg was going to allow her for the first time to, to be more like the other kids. And the reaction of her classmates is just priceless. So check this out. How good is that, right? Some things you don't even need words for. I hope you guys are reading along with us through the daily devotions we're sending out. Um, we're, we're going through the book of Luke, and, and we're giving everyone in the church an opportunity to come with us through the book. And what we've been asking is if you would just be willing to spend um, 15, or excuse me, um, yeah, 15 minutes a day, five times a week. We're going to send you a devotion. comes in your email. If, if maybe you'd put music on for five minutes and just worship God. And if you just read the devotion for maybe five minutes and maybe just spend a little time in prayer, I, I think it'll have huge impact. I'm telling you, Jesus is not who you think he is. I'm telling you, he's not who you've been told he is. Uh, I have been through the Gospels, as you can imagine, a, a lot. And every time I go through, I go, I ask the same question of our last material. Who is this guy? Because he's always different than I think he, he, he should be. So anyway, if you're not and you want to be, you've only really missed the beginning of Luke, which is the Christmas story, and, and you know that anyway, right? So you can still get on that train, go to the Welcome Center and sign up, and you'll get a devotion starting tomorrow. You can catch up with us. Now, as we work our way through this book, this teaching uh, as recorded by the physician Luke, today I want to look at the lessons of how we value others, maybe even how we begin to think correctly about valuing ourselves. And in order to do that, I want to look at two gatherings that Luke recounts. You'll see them in your emails this week. One is just a brief, uh, a brief topic, and I'll talk about it just for a minute. And the second I want to talk about in a bit more detail, because there's a similarity to them, and there's a lesson about Jesus in them, and, and there's a lesson for you and I and, and value there that I think we need to take a second look at. First is the story about a paralyzed man and his friends who bring him to Jesus for healing. If you've been around the church, you've heard about this story. Now, let me give you some background. If you are a paralytic, if you're a paralytic in any century... It's a cruel fate, but to be one in the first century is particularly harsh. This, this man, whoever he was, his life would have been lived out for the most part on a mat three feet wide and six feet long. Someone had to feed him and carry him and clothe him and move him just to keep from being covered with bed sores. Somebody had to clean him when he soiled himself. This man in his life had never known the sense of independence that we all want so desperately. In the first century, there were no surgeries, there were no rehab programs, there weren't any treatment centers. 
There, there was no way for the man to give back to society. Anybody in this man's condition was, was sentenced to go through life as a beggar, to be laid by the side of the road, to be dependent on people dropping coins beside him to live another day. If you've been to Guatemala City with me and you've walked the streets of Guatemala City, you see this. This is happening right now. His, his as-is tag, if you will, was, was three feet wide and six feet long. It was his mat. It's who he was. In Israel, this man, he would have suffered from even another stigma because there was a common assumption, assumption amongst the people that if you were suffering physically, you had brought it on yourself. You had deserved it, in a sense. You had done something. You had sinned against God in such a way that God was so angry with you, that, that God was so mad at you, that he had punished you in this way. There's a New Testament story you might be familiar with where, where uh, the disciples see a blind man from birth and they say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus sets them straight that that's not the issue. So let's enter the story. One day Jesus comes to the town of the paralytic and he has four friends who care about him very much. And, and naturally the four men themselves, they want to hear this famous rabbi. One of them likely says, you know, if the reputation about this Jesus is true, though, maybe we shouldn't just go ourselves. Maybe we should bring our friend because it might not just be an encouragement to him. I mean, if Jesus' reputation is, is real, maybe he could heal our friend. I mean, wouldn't that be something? If you know the story, they go to the home where Jesus is teaching and the place is packed. They can't get anywhere near Jesus. But they're so determined they're so full of love for their friend. They're so full of faith and belief in the power of this Jesus that they decide not to stay at a distance from God. Instead, they, they will do anything they can to get to him. So they climb the roof of the home and they cut a hole in the thatch and they lower their friend down on his paralytic mat. And here's how, how this physician Luke recounts Jesus' reaction. He says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said... Friends, or excuse me, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. He didn't say you're healed. He said your sins are forgiven. Interesting, right? Because this is a man who's been mocked and judged by people who assume that his damaged body indicated that he was spiritually inferior, maybe spiritually unclean. And Jesus shows up on the scene and takes a look at him and goes, you're clean. Forget about what they've told you. That's not true. You're forgiven. You're right with God. Your faith has made it so. I was reading somebody's work on this, and they said a friend asked, well, in reality, what sins could a paralytic do anyway? See, Jesus understands that the deadliest sins aren't the sins, you know, that get acted on often. Often they're the sins that are, are, are deepest within us. Resentment and arrogance and judgmentalism and lovelessness. We can commit those without lifting a finger. And what's an interesting part of the story is, you know who, has, who have all the best seats in the house? The people who were thought of and the people who thought of themselves as the spiritual giants, they had arrived on time. They had gotten the good seats. But there's something to notice in the story. They didn't have anybody to bring to Jesus. They were supposed to be the most spiritual, 
But they didn't know anybody in their midst. They didn't surround themselves by anybody that might have been hurting or confused or was actually in need of Jesus. Luke continues, he says, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? He goes on. Jesus knew what they were thinking. I, I love this, right? You read the scripture, it's amazing. Jesus sees into their hearts and he looks and he goes, why are, you, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, I, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them. All of the atrophy of his muscles goes away. And he took what he had been lying on, and he went home praising God. Jesus is concerned for his critics even enough, more than I am oftentimes. He loves his critics enough. He loves them as much as he loves the man that just came through the ceiling. He loves them enough to say, just so you see that I have the authority. And then he turns to the man on the mat and says, get up and take your mat and go home. And everybody watches, and he lifts his mat off the ground, and he folds it up. He had spent his whole life on this thing, devalued, told he didn't count, that he didn't matter, that God had been punishing him, that he was less somehow in God's eyes. And suddenly, never again. Now, it's interesting, Matthew shares a little detail about this story when he recounts it. Matthew says this, And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, I love this, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. In other words, son, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of God anymore. Don't, don't listen to what they, they've been telling you. I love you. I have the power to forgive you of your sins. Church, he's saying, I have the power to forgive you of your sins. I can make you right and whole and new. Don't let them tell you anymore that you're less than or far from. Don't be afraid. Even more important than your legs being healed, I'm first going to forgive you your sins. Don't be afraid of me anymore. And so now, fast forward with me to a, a, another gathering two chapters later. You'll see it this week in your readings. Jesus is invited to a dinner at the house of a Pharisee. A Pharisee, if you, if you know the scripture, is a religious leader in the community. They are above reproach in regards to keeping the law. And they did not like the teaching of Jesus. And they likely, this Pharisee likely invited this rabbi, this, this rabbi named Jesus over for dinner, not for his company, but in order to trap him in some kind of a heretical teaching moment. And so Luke lays out the scene like this. He says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. If you know how first century meals were, were eaten, it's actually fascinating. It's likely the way the Last Supper was eaten. It's not like, is it Da Vinci that painted it? It's not like Da Vinci's painting. There was usually a table set up in a U-shaped fashion. And what you would do is when you reclined at the table, you would be leaning head forward, feet all as far as can be from the table, and you'd be leaning on one side on, on your arm. 
And so it would make sense in the first century when, you know, obviously, you know, there weren't showers available in the home, there wasn't running water, you would keep your feet, which had been, you know, you, would, you were your main source of travel, those would be kept furthest from the table. And that's the scene that's getting set up here, right? Now, there's another thing that you might not be aware of, though, that Luke points out, and he points it out for a reason. It has to do with etiquette, and etiquette that's getting breached in this scene all over the place. Luke points out that Jesus was invited. He, he was a guest, and as a rabbi and as a guest, he should have been, according to Jewish custom and ritual, treated as a guest of honor at the meal. And there were rules for guests of honor. The customary greeting was a kiss. That was not, in Jesus' day, necessarily just an expression of affection. It was a polite acknowledgement of the guest's arrival. The kiss would take different forms, depending on the status of the party involved. If the guest was a person of equal social rank, then the host would kiss him on the cheek. If a child were, were greeting a parent or a student, um, his rabbi, a kiss on the hand would be in order. Not to greet a guest with a kiss was to neglect Beyond neglect, it was simply like ignoring. It would be like you guys coming to my house and me not getting up. Hey, man, right back to my TV show. But it goes beyond that. We talked about the feet, right? Well, the washing of feet was mandatory before a meal. If the guest was of high status, as Jesus would have been, the host would perform this duty himself. That's why Jesus performs this on his disciples, to show his servant nature, right? If not, he might have had a servant do it. A particularly lazy or arrogant host might simply give the guests some water and expect them to bathe their own feet. That, however, would be considered somewhat borderline offensive, kind of like me having you over saying, okay, when you're done, uh, you, you, know, you can clean the dishes in the sink and put them away. Right? That, that's what's going on here. But, but Jesus doesn't even get water for his feet. A thoughtful host might give his guests some olive oil for anointing. In a world that, that you know, had a surplus of heat and a scarcity of deodorant, such a gesture, gesture was considered refreshing. But in, in this story, Jesus arrives at this home and he receives none of this. At the home of Simon the Pharisee, he gets no greeting. He gets no water for his feet. He, he gets no anointing for his head. These are not subtle omissions. Everybody understood what was happening here. It was a deliberate slap in the face. Everybody else that was present would have understood what was going on. One writer that's an expert on etiquette of the day said, quote, The insult to Jesus has to be intentional and electrifies the assembled guests. War had been declared and everyone is waiting to see what Jesus' response is going to be. Well, at that moment, Luke says, a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, right, because his feet would have been extended back beyond the table, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair. And then she kissed them and poured perfume on them. In the book, Everyone is Normal Until You Get to Know Them, there's such a wonderful picture of this painted. I'd like to read from that for you because they do such a wonderful job painting um, a word picture. I couldn't do it justice. So here's how they, they write the scene would have gone down. 
Banquets like this in the first century were open-air events. You would have a house, but then the courtyard would be open. Uh, and, and if you invited a Pharisee over, you would want people to see you sit, or excuse me, a, 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 a rabbi. You would want people to see you. It would be a moment of prestige. And this is likely what was going on here, not because it was a moment of prestige for this Pharisee. He mostly, most likely wanted people to come and watch him put Jesus in his place. And so this open-air banquet in the courtyard of the well-to-do, anybody could walk up and watch and listen. And in that courtyard, there's a woman present. She's, she's not just a sinner. She's a prostitute. And she, she's known in the village as such. She'd heard Jesus' teaching maybe earlier that day, and something about him must have struck her very deep in her heart. And she likely began to wonder, you know... How in the world did I come to this? Nobody ever grows up thinking they're going to be a prostitute. Once this woman had been someone's little baby, the object of her mother's hopes and dreams. Maybe her husband had rejected her. Maybe this was the only way she could survive economically. Maybe her heart had, had become hard and it was the easiest way to make the most money. But, but this is for certain. This woman would have known what it meant to be despised and unwelcome. Just like today, in Jesus' day, prostitutes were usually slaves who had either been captured in war or abandoned as infants and raised to be part of the sex trade. It's possible this woman had been sold into slavery by her parents. She carried in her heart the enormous wound of rejection, perhaps even rejection at the hands of her mother and her father. She certainly would have known rejection as an adult. No decent person speaks to prostitutes. No one would welcome her or acknowledge her. Doors open for her, but they only open at night. Doors open for her, but they only open in secret and in shame. And so when the woman hears Jesus teach, the thought occurs to her that she, right there in her life, in her sin, maybe despite what she'd been told, is loved by God. He thinks of her and he longs for her as if she were his daughter. That she's valued. That it's not too late even for her. And so she hears that Jesus is going to be attending this dinner. And of course, she knew she would not be invited to that in a million years. So she gathers all of her courage and she comes into the courtyard and she's overwhelmed by the idea of God's love and grace for her. Yet she sees what Simon is doing to Jesus, the way Simon is treating him. She watches as the one who's given her new life is ignored and insulted. And so the watching crowd, they're waiting for Jesus to make some strained remarks about being unwelcome and then to just walk off in a huff. But he doesn't. Much like before the cross, he stands silent. Much like before the cross, he accepts his humiliation without protest. Because you see, in that moment, at that dinner, nobody, just like at his arrest, no one comes to his side. No one stands up for him. And this woman, she, she can't stand it. Her love and devotion and anger, they all kind of well up to the surface. And, and she's trying to think, what can I do? And she can't be the one to give Jesus a kiss of greeting. I mean, how presumptuous would that be? How would the people around the table interpret a prostitute kissing him? So what could she do? And she has this impulse. 
maybe I could kiss his feet. Because to wash someone's feet was an act of abasement. To kiss them would be an act of utter humility. And, and so she decides, she gets her courage up, and she, she begins to act quickly before she loses her nerve. And you've got to enter the story and imagine the drama. Suddenly a woman who had been watching everything for the courtyard runs into the room, a woman clearly not invited, and she stands at the feet of Jesus. Everybody looks back from the table, and she kneels down to kiss his feet so that someone might greet him, that someone might give him the honor due. And she crouches there for how long? And in this moment of desperate courage, she dares to look up at his face. She likely had stopped looking into people's eyes many years ago because all she ever saw was lust or condemnation. But she looks into Jesus' face. And instead of judgment or ridicule or embarrassment, she sees love. She hasn't seen that look in a man's eye in a long time. She may have never seen that look in a man's eye. And it's from the best man she's ever known. He loves her. She's not an object to him. She's like a daughter. She's not a commodity. She's a friend. She's, you see, he... He chooses to love her in the light and not in the darkness. And tears start to come to her eyes, a few at first and then more, and they start pouring down her face. It's tears of sadness for what she's done, who she's been. Tears of gratitude because of the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Tears of joy because of the new life that's possible that is laid out in front of her. And Jesus become, his eyes become kind of like a mirror in which she sees the possibility of becoming this new woman. She, she could get a do-over. You see, Jesus' feet unwashed by sun, and they become wet with her tears. And she likely looks down and sees, sees what she's done, and she wonders, well, how can I dry his feet? Look what I've done. Simon's never going to give me a towel. He would, he would never even allow me in the room. And so she gets an impulse to let down her hair. Please hear this now, guys. This is a shocking breach of etiquette. A woman in Jesus' day always wore her hair up in public. She was never allowed to hang it loose in mixed company. It was considered way too provocative, a situation for men to handle. If a married woman lets down her hair in front of any other than her husband, it was grounds for divorce. And everyone in that room knows what she does for a living. Everyone in that room knows she has let down her hair many times before and with many men. And this time... She does it for the last time. And with her hair, she wipes Jesus' feet. Scripture says she had this alabaster jar of ointment around her neck. Most likely it was a flask worn that contained a kind of perfume. Because of her profession, this flask was quite important. In an era not known for hygiene, the use of perfume helped to make her work a little bit more pleasant. And she takes this flask of her, this flask representing her identity, this flask representing her brokenness, this flask likely representing a, a lot of her, her earthly goods, and she empties it all out on his feet. This is an act of great significance because she is not going to need it anymore. 
She pours out her old way of life. She knows she can't anoint Jesus' head. That would be unseemly. She's a sinful woman. He's a holy man. So she pours it on his feet and begins to kiss them over and over. She's been so broken and undone by his sheer goodness. It's as if she's forgotten who she is and, and where she is. And, and she just unabashedly, unashamedly pours herself out in adoration and gratitude. But there were other men in the room that day. Men that think like us. Luke says that when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, again, he said to himself, we often have these conversations in our hearts because we know we shouldn't speak them aloud. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. But see, here's the story. The story is Jesus knows who this woman is. And Jesus knows who Simon is. And he loves both of them. And he sees both of them. And in order that Simon might begin to value what he's perceived to simply be kind of sinful trash on his floor, Jesus says, Simon, I have a story to tell you. And it's a story that you and I need to hear. Jesus answered him. He said, Simon, I have to, I have to tell you something. It's interesting because it says Jesus answered him. Simon hadn't even asked a question. Jesus answered his prideful, sinful thought, and he said, Simon, I have to tell you something. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, well, I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. This is so cool. Watch this now. And, and while he's still speaking to, to Simon, Luke records an interesting detail. Then Jesus turns towards the woman. You have to imagine what's going through this woman's mind as everybody in the room likely turns from looking at Jesus' interaction with Simon and everybody turns with Jesus towards the woman. You have to think about what she's thinking, right? Everyone's looking at her. She, she, her heart is, is pounding. Her, her mind is racing. She's put herself way out there. Fear's got to be creeping in a little bit with every eye focused on her. And then Jesus asked one of the great questions ever asked in the Bible. Are you ready for it? Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? And the truth is, he didn't. You see, Simon saw a theological object lesson. He saw everything that he hated and despised. He saw someone he perceived as a threat to the culture and to society and to his kids and to the reverence of God and to the Ten Commandments. He saw trash and filth and he saw an enemy. He saw someone who didn't believe like he believed. He saw someone who did not act the way he saw fit. He saw someone who didn't follow what he had preached. But he didn't see what Jesus saw. And the interesting thing here is that this, and, and, and I've been wrestling with this all week as I've been thinking about this story. It's been very convicting to me here because the interesting thing is that this woman's sin was not against Simon. She did not sin against Simon. Her sin was against God, and yet God loved her, and Simon seemed indifferent at the least and probably hated her at best. Huge object lesson for me as I have struggled with, with friends and people that I care about and, and I've preached week after week and I've taken them out and they get themselves involved in these sinful messes and, 
and, and they willfully do things that they know are not the will of God. And you know what I find in my heart sometimes? I get angry. This week I was getting frustrated at somebody. It's, they don't go to our church, so it's not you. Um, <laughs> I was getting frustrated with somebody that I, that, that I know, that I'm friends with, that would tell you, oh, I'm, I'm following Jesus, but I'm just going to live this way because, oh, don't worry, you know, I, I, and I'm just getting so upset and I'm getting angry and, I, and I, I felt like the Lord said, you know, she's not sinning against you. Why don't you start seeing her the way I see her? And so Jesus said to Simon, you know, Simon, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But Simon, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon, you didn't give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You see, Simon, you didn't put oil on my head, but she poured herself out. She poured her perfume on my feet. And therefore, I tell you, her many sins, her big debt, they've been forgiven. As her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. This is what I want you to see with me this morning. I want you to reflect on in your devotions this week as you walk through Luke with us. He is not saying, Jesus is not saying, Simon, she has a big debt and yours is little. Simon, you're a righteous man. You don't need to be forgiven of a lot. See, that's the lesson. She's really thankful because she had to be forgiven a lot. And you don't need to be thankful, Simon, because you don't need to be forgiven much at all. The problem for Simon, and for me, because I'm a church guy, and maybe for you, if you've been around the church a long time, or maybe you're second or a third generation Christian, is that Simon perceives himself to have, at least compared to this prostitute, very little sin. He perceives himself to be the small debtor. Jesus never sees that, but he knows that Simon's perception. And can I be honest with you? So often it is my perception about myself I'm a pastor. She's a prostitute. I go on missions trips. He gets drunk. I tithe. He's got a big house. I mean, I could do this all day long. Because all of us, in one way or another, we're Simons believing that, well, of course, I would admit I'm not perfect. I've got some issues. But on the sliding scale of sin, my debt's not all that big. Here's the problem. P please stick with me on this. When we think this way, and we all do one, one level or another, we will never come to experience or know the love of Jesus Christ at any kind of real depth, nor will we ever understand the need we have for Jesus the way this woman did. It's like, it's like fake armor that you put on that repels you from Christ. One writer put it this way, there was great sin defiling that room that day, but it was not the sin that Simon thought of. It was the sin of lips that won't kiss. It was the sin of knees that won't bend, of eyes that won't weep, of hands that won't serve, of perfume that won't leave the jar. It was the sin of a heart that would not break, of a life that wouldn't change, of a soul that wouldn't love. The greatest command is the command of love. The greatest sin is refusal to obey the greatest command. And Jesus says, in effect, Simon, don't you see? You got the biggest debt of all. And then in the same way Jesus dismissed the paralytic in our earlier story, Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. 
He has the power to do that. The other guests, just like in our other story, began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. And so now go in peace. Don't be afraid anymore. Maybe for the first time in your life, go in peace. And so here's my question for you this morning. Do you understand who you are? When you look in the mirror, do you understand who it is that's looking back? C.S. Lewis put it like this way. Put it like this, reflecting on this story. He says, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. But it's the proud, it's, it's the avarice, it's the self-righteous that are in that danger. Have we begun, because I, I do sometimes, have we begun to look at those in the world who don't look like us, that don't think like us, that don't vote like us, who don't believe like us, who maybe worship a different God than us, who, who marry different people than we want them to, who relate to each other differently than we would have them to? Have we allowed ourselves to believe that somehow they're less valuable to God than we are? Because when we do that, when we start to believe... Listen to me now on this. When we start to believe, because it's in us, it's in our brokenness, when we start to believe others' need for the grace of God is greater than our own need for the grace of God, we start to look a little bit more like Simon and a lot less like Jesus. And the gift of God in Jesus becomes a little less valuable and a whole lot less overwhelming. And our knees, which need bending, start becoming a lot stiffer. Now, conversely, I met with a new friend this week. And he was sharing with me, he said, I'm on the other side of this story, John. He said, people know what I've done. It's out there. Maybe, you, maybe that's you. Maybe you've lived a life that's a little less than perfect, and you're well aware of it. Maybe you carry the scarlet letter around of that public screw-up. You know, your DUI was in the patch. Like, for most of us, our sin is private. But for some of us, like the woman in our story, the sin winds up in the headlines. It winds up in the courtroom. It winds up discussed at the family gathering. Maybe, maybe you two have a hard time seeing yourself correctly the way God does. Because God sees with utter clarity who you are. He is not undeceived as to what your warts are or the wickedness that lies beneath. But when God looks at you, all... All of that is not all that he sees. He sees who you were intended to be. And he sees who one day you could become. Now, I don't know what your mat is this morning. The paralytic in our story is Matt, right? It represented all of his brokenness and all of his shame and all of his outcastness. I don't know what your alabaster jar is this morning, the icon of your sinful past. But here's what Jesus says to you. You, you, need to, you need to hear this maybe for the first time because you've heard it so many times in your life, it's, maybe it's gone, gone cold. Here's what Jesus says to you. I have the power to forgive your sins. I have the power to forgive your sin. Your faith can save you. Don't be afraid of me anymore. Come, run, weep, make merry as ones who have had a big debt forgiven and get up and go in peace. Here's the second question. To what or to whom have you applied mistaken value? 
See, the what part we get all the time, right? We mess, mess this up all the time, and we know it. We know we mess it up, but it's still so hard. I mean, I can't tell many how many people tell me, oh, you know, family first. But how many people would say family first? Raise your hand if you would say family first. And how many of you people would, how many of you, how many of you people, how many of us really live that way? I mean, uh, guys, let me, let, me, let me ask you some hard questions, okay? How many hours do you have to work? How much money do you have to make? How high do you have to climb? How big does your house have to be? How many women do you need to be with? Ladies, how much, how much approval have you sought? How much weight do you feel you need to drop? How perfect your nails and your kids need to be? All for what? For what? For whose approval? For what value? And lastly, I, I would ask you this. Who do you need to start seeing differently? Who have you discounted? Who have you written off? Who has sinned against God but not sinned against you that you're angry at? Who have you taken for granted? When I do weddings, I, I try to remind, I'm usually harder on the men than I am on the women, mostly because I'm a guy, I guess, and, and, and women cry easier. Um, it's never good during a wedding either. And uh, a lot of times, you know, the, the, the bride and the, the father of the bride will come down the aisle and we're waiting and it's a very holy moment as, as, the, as the, the groom and the bride stand separated and, and the father is in the middle and the, the father is in a very beautiful moment, usually pulls back the, um, what do you call this thing, veil? and uh, kisses his daughter and, and puts their hands together. And he usually comes and he sits in that seat right there. And there's a point in the service where I, I stop and I say, I want you to understand something. Because God taught me this story. Um, he, he actually taught it to me while I was writing a wedding sermon years and years ago. He, he's, God's lesson to me was, you are not just marrying Joan Berg. You're marrying Carl's little girl and you better start loving her about as much as Carl does. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of his heart for you, and that's the story of his heart for people that offend us. And so what I would ask you to do this week in your devotions, I'm trying to get you to come along. I want you to see Jesus for who he is. I want you to get a second opinion on your life. I want you to get a second opinion on your values. Go out and sign up at the Welcome Center. You know there's almost 200 people signed up for this that are getting this email weekly right now. Here's what I would ask you to pray in your time this week. Pray, Lord, would you open my eyes that I might see what you see? Lord, would you open my eyes that I might see my own need for grace? That I too, Lord, would you open my eyes to, to my debt? I mean, some of us, especially as church folks, we need our eyes open to our debt. We start to think, man, you know, we're not too bad. We don't need all that much grace. They need a lot of it. Would you pray that you, would, you could see yourself correctly and that, that in showing you that, that the Lord would allow you to really come to an appreciation love for him like crazy? Would you pray, Lord, open my eyes that I might be able to forgive myself? to see myself the way you see me, to value myself the way you value me, to stop trying to gain my value from things of this world and the fading approval of others. And lastly, as the band comes up here, Lord, 
Would you open my eyes to see those that I've so often looked down on, seen as less than, got angry at because they don't live the way I want them to live? Lord, would you, would you open my eyes to see those that I've treated as enemies? Would you open my eyes that I might see them as you do? Just keep going back to that thought. Do you see this woman? Lord, would you open my eyes so that I might begin to see only sons and daughters, beloved children of the Most High God, some which are lost and need to be found. I heard somebody once say about the gospel, if it's not good news for everyone, it's not good news for anyone. And, and it's about time that those of us that struggle with Simon Natures start making the gospel good news for everyone.